Thank you for that prayer. Um, Lord, I would just ask our Father, our King, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart are acceptable to you and that you would fulfill the prayer of our brother, that you would do the work in our hearts that needs to be done. Um, it's been an interesting week running up to, to be standing here. I finished last week, and, and unfortunately I didn't give you this, so it's not going to be up on the screen, but I finished with, uh, and if some of the branches were broken off, and you being, wild, uh, being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, with them, and became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, which is Jesus Christ, do not boast against the branches. If you boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You're grafted into Christ and you're upheld and fed and strengthened by Christ. You will then say then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because unbelief, they were broken off and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who f fell severity, but towards you goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Which is kind of a, a wake up at the end there. So the appeal last week was, we need to be about the gospel. We need to t pick up this desire of God and make it our desire, this wish, because it's a desirous will, that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And we need to start considering that we are his mouthpiece in the world, that we are his hands and his feet, as Roman was saying just a, a moment ago. So I um, started my reading for this past week on Monday instead of Sunday, and I was reading in 1 Peter 3, which if you're reading along with us, you would see that, and you, uh, you were there too. And I re re read this verse, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to have a defense, a reason uh, to everyone who asks you, a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And it, it's in the midst of trial, in the midst of... Um, them doing evil to you while you're doing good to them. And I wanted to preach on that, and I started working on that, and then started considering Rosh Hashanah, which is the new year, um, the feast of blowing, the feast of trumpets. Uh, we see that in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 15 at the very end, and 1 Thessalonians 4 at the very end. It's the return of Christ that's gonna be the fulfillment of that. And then um, this coming week, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and then following that, um, the Feast of Booths, the three feasts yet to be fulfilled. The first four feasts, the spring feasts, were all fulfilled literally and in their timing. So maybe stop and think this week, is, is this the time? Is he coming back today? And that should give us pause, because we all go, yes, Lord, take me, please. But right on the other side of that is the bema seat of Christ. When we have to give, a, give an account to him 
for every word that we've spoken, every idle word it says, every word that we didn't think about when we spoke it. And I think, you know, I think there'll be joy there, but there certainly will be tears there for some. And in 1 Corinthians 3, if you read, some come through that event as if by fire. All they have is their salvation and presence with the Lord. Because they built with wood, hay, and stubble instead of gold, uh, silver, and precious gems. So that was in my mind, and, and the Lord kept nudging me. And, and at the end of the week, I went to the Chosen People Ministry Conference on 9-11 in the Middle East, which I spent about 10 hours crying. Um, tremendous testimonies, tremendous um, images from 20 years ago. And, and the basic theme of the conference is this horrendous thing happened, but there's a backstory that you need to see and understand and hear about how God was working every moment during that crisis and during the cleanup and all the amazing things that God did and the doors that he opened. And there were testimonies of uh, people in the Middle East and um, Michael Redalnik gave a, a brief overview of the coming events in, in prophecy. And it, it, was, it was a pretty remarkable conference, but like I said, lots of crying. <laughs> crying of joy and crying of tears, remembering personally, you know, everybody has an answer. It's like JFK, right? For, my, for our parents' generation. Where were you on 9-11? Well, the night before I had flown into Austin, Texas and was on my way to a class at Vignette, which is a, a computer company, turned on the radio and I hear about the second plane. I call my wife all frantic and she's like, what, what are you saying, what are you doing? I said, you gotta get plugged in and turn on the TV. And then I spent a week worrying, how am I gonna get home? How am I gonna get home? So I came and the Lord just through all these things kind of said, okay, that's an important verse, but look back. And he kept moving me back and he moved me back to the beginning of the epistle. So we're going to look at um, a, a passage in the first epistle to Peter. If you'd open your Bibles there. Um, this, this was written by the apostle Peter, um, the apostle to the Jewish people. And he wrote it to the believers, and you can see in 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again, has made us born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Begotten us, not just him, his readers too, uh, to the inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And uh, thank you, Richard, for doing a here journal on that when we were there. And I just want to point out, if you look over at um, verses eight and uh, nine and ten in chapter two, these are particularly Jewish believers. But you are a chosen generation. Literally, that is an elect nation. A royal priesthood. 
I'm sorry, a holy nation, a chosen, uh, an elect nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who are called out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but now are a people uh, of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And, and our brothers, and I'll call them brothers because they are truly believers who, who are in the vein of replacement theology, supersessionism, tend to use this passage to say, see, it's, it's not Israel, it's the church. But, and they specifically use that 10th verse. But listen to this out of Hosea, because this is what Peter's quoting. Hosea 1, 9 and 10. Then God said, call his name, Hosea's son, Lo-Ami. And literally it means, for you are not my people. And I will not, I will not be your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. So Peter quotes a bit of a passage, and they know exactly what he's thinking. They know the passage. And in the New Testament, you have a snippet, but not the context. And we go, see, our brothers say, see, Israel is not God's people anymore. So this is written to Jewish believers. So we got to kind of be careful here because there's a difference between the Jewish believers, the natural branches, and the wild olive branches grafted in, us Gentiles. So there's some things in this epistle that might be particularly Jewish. But I, everything that we're going to talk about today kind of bleeds over. It applies to us too. So we're going to start, and I'll read the passage and we'll come back to it and look at each piece of it. Um, well, I'll read, I'll, I'll take it piece by piece because I know what they put in um, the slides. So we're going to look at 1 Peter 1, 13 through 17. Verse 13, we'll take a look at that one first. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in the section that starts with verse 13, going all the way through uh, chapter 5, verse 11, Peter issues 35 commands to his Jewish Messianic brothers. Things that God commands them and commands us to be and do. And we're gonna look at just a few of them. Um, I have three here, but I'm gonna reach into chapter three where I started, and it kind of explains the third one with uh, a reiteration of that command. So the first command here is it's a, it's a command, it's an aorist tense, which is a punctiliar action. My Greek teacher in, in Bible school said, well, that means that it's not an action that you're not doing yet, and you need to start doing it. And the action is hoping. You're commanded to hope. And he says, rest fully your hope, which is the way that the English kind of made it fit English. But you're supposed to hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
All right? He starts out saying, having girded up your, the loins of your mind, you need a disciplined mind. This is not for a slothful thinker. It's not for a scattered brain person. And the concept of girding up is, was very prevalent in that world because they wore long flowing robes like tunics. And when they did work, they pulled up the edges in the bottom and they stuck them into the belt so that they were like in shorts and they could do the work and not get tripped up. So Peter's saying, gird up the loins of your mind. Get your mind in order and think through this straightly. Start hoping or start hoping fully, completely, perfectly on the grace that is to be brought to you in, in the future at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He wasn't looking back at the cross here. He wasn't looking of, I've been forgiven, I've been born again, I've been saved, I have the Holy Spirit. That's not what he was looking at as his hope. He's looking at the hope down the road that's coming at the revelation of Jesus Christ at the end, at Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, when it comes. From our perspective, at the trumpet in 1 Thessalonians 4, and everybody goes, yes, come Lord Jesus, right? Except there's that Bema seat there. So it's a hope that's going to come down there. What's that hope? Well, that's the hope that finally sin will be removed from my person. And there's no more war within me. It's that hope that finally Jesus will come again and the messianic kingdom will be here. And there will be peace throughout the world and no more wars. It's that place where we will see him face to face and we will be like him. Is that a little bit to hope on? Now, you know, hope. Our society is all messed up on the term hope, so I need to kind of talk to that for a second. Hope, you know, the hope of our society is I bought a scratch ticket, I hope I win. Right? No, lost again. Oh, maybe I'll buy another one. And you see the people, you know, they go and they spend $50 and they have an arm's length and they scratch and I lost all of them. That is not the hope of the New Testament. Hebrews 11.1 1 talks about this. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So in our faith, hope is something that's there that we can't see yet. It's kept for us, like we read, who are um, to an inheritance, that's the future, incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away, reserved for you in heaven. Right? It's, our faith says it's there. I can reach out and touch it, but I can't see it yet. It's the evidence. Our faith is the evidence that it's there. That's the type of hope we're supposed to have. 
We have the hope that we're going to see him again. We have the hope of the resurrection. We have the hope of being without sin before him. We have the hope of always being with him. And that's foundational in our life. Start hoping on those things. And it's not a positional grace, it's a future grace. Now interestingly, this should make our lives kind of fall into a mode, and I have a quote from an old, um, I wish Carmen were here because I'm quoting him today, um, from an old sermon. Pastor Rizzo preached that there's only two days on the, on the calendar of the believer. This day and that day. Tomorrow isn't the thing. You got today and you got that day. And that's the way we should live. We're going to do this day in light of that day. We're going to behave this day in light of standing before him and giving an account. And we're looking to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. Now I talked a lot about what we know as hope, but what do you think they knew as hope? They didn't know, I, I don't know that they had read any of Paul's epistles. Right? So about, not even a decade earlier, Paul wrote Thessalonians and Corinthians. So they may have seen the passage. Maybe not. I'm thinking that they probably just had the passages of the Old Testament to, to, to think about. And that would, the first that came to my mind was Daniel and the beasts. And, and the Roman guy that's going to come. Now they, the temple was still there, so they didn't even know that it was a Roman leader that was going to come. A revived Roman Empire. But they had these beast images, which are just plain scary. And, or, or maybe they had Zechariah 3, 8, and 9, and that should be up there. And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord. This is, and this is a passage that's apocalyptic that two-thirds of it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. And I will bring the one-third through the fire and refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. Which is very similar to what Hosea wrote that we talked about. They want the kingdom, but there's some really bad things that are going to happen when the kingdom gets set up. They didn't have the book of Revelation. They didn't realize how much of humanity is going to die in the apocalypse, in the revelation of Jesus Christ, on the days of Yom Kippur. So we're supposed to put our hope, and they put their hope that the king was coming back. And there would be peace. They knew, that, they knew that much. They had a messianic hope. A hope that right at the, the ascension, they're like, all right, so when are you going to set up the kingdom? 
No, it's not for you to know. You're going to do this first. Like we talked about last week. So we need to set our hope fully, completely, on the grace that's coming to us. We know it's coming. It's not like a scratch ticket. It's more like a payday. I get paid twice a week. I work my 80 hours, and the next Thursday, I get paid. get deposited into my account. It's never failed in more than 34 years. That's the kind of hope we have. So, the command is to start hoping on those things, to focus on those things, and to live according to that day. And the second, we'll read the next uh, three verses. Verse 14, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. And there's the command in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, holy, and there's the command, for I am holy. Now, I'm not sure what passage in the Old Testament this comes from, because there's several who repeat that exact verse. Be holy, for I am holy. It's like a repetitive thing God kept telling the Israelites. And again, the command is in the aorist, start, being holy. It's not a positional holiness. It's not a holiness back there because we are holy. The lump is holy. The tree is holy. We are declared holy. We are declared saved. We are declared justified before God. And we have a positional holiness. Now we know in our day-to-day life we still sin. We still struggle. And the command for today is to be or start becoming holy. Now, holy is another thing in the religious world that gets all kind of messed up. You know, oh, I'll get some holy water and sprinkle it on you and you'll be holy. Nah, that's not the way it works. Holy is a very simple term, hagios, set apart. I'm going to make this holy. It's with my Bible, I'm going to make it holy. It's set apart. It's not part of my Bible. It's there for a special first purpose, to give me notes about what I want to say. You're holy. God took you from what is common, which is the world, and he put you into a holy place, into a holy relationship, a set-apartness unto him, set apart from the world, set apart unto God. Think holy matrimony, that one fits. You're no longer on the market, you're dedicated to one person, you take vows, and you're forever in a relationship, a very special set apart relationship with that one person. Yvonne's right there, she's my one special person. That's the concept of holy. You're not supposed to be in the world. As a matter of fact, it says, be as obedient children, not conforming yourself, not being pressed into your former lusts. As in your ignorance, as in your, when you didn't know God. 
We're supposed to be holy. Start being, start becoming holy. Wait a second. They were believers. They had trusted in Messiah. They were washed by the blood, right? Just like we are. Down there, we're supposed to be without sin completely. That environment, that hope that we have to be with our husband, Messiah King, is to be completely holy, set apart to him in a holy relationship. We're supposed to be becoming holy now. Get used to what being holy is all about, because if you want to continue to live that way, you're not going to live there. It's a different environment. We're supposed to be set apart. That's kind of a difficult thing. It's, this is, as I was looking at the whole issue of being faithful to God and making his desires, um, the work that we do, our desires, and, and, and beyond that, reaching the world with Christ, God's only going to be able to reach the world with holy people. You're going to be able to relate because you're not completely holy. You're not there yet. But you know what? You need, you're going to need to be set apart. You're going to need to be different. The world doesn't need to hear what the world says all the time. They need to hear this. And as it said in that passage in, in verse 9, a royal priesthood. You go back to Israel and the priests were separated. To the point where in Christ's day, when the man, when the, the Jewish man fell by robbers and thieves, the, the Levite and the priest went on the other side of the road, not to touch him, because they had business, right? They were on the Lord's business. I need to be holy. That's not exactly the right way to approach it. And Christ kind of showed that we're supposed to be neighbors to everybody by the Samaritan. Right? But your speech needs to be set apart. Your doings need to be set apart. The way you look at the world needs to be set apart. That's right in, below the, the, the tail end of the Shema passage. Let my word be a, a sign upon your hand. It governs everything that we do or don't do and how we do it. May it be as frontlets between my eyes. The way I look at the world, the way I judge the world, the way I perceive the world, the way I think about the world, the things I desire in the world. We're supposed to be holy. We're commanded to be holy. And then the last command that I want to look at, and we'll look at some examples of this. And if you call upon the, on the Father, who without partiality, he's got no favorites, judges according to each one's work, that's kind of the same thing that 1 Corinthians 3 says, conduct yourselves through the time of your stay here in fear. So in a sense, we're called to fear. It's kind of a rough thing to translate. 
Um, the verb is also a uh, command in the air, in the air, so it's start doing this. But the verb is having lived or passed. So it looks back and says, I have lived in a way, my sojourn, my pilgrimage, in fear. I've lived in a way in fear. I started thinking and noodling on that. And we know from scripture that we have not been given a spirit of fear, but of a sound mind, right? So what, what does he mean by the fear? Well, let's, let's look at a couple examples and then we'll look at a clearer place. Let's go back all the way to Genesis chapter 22. Do you live in fear? Special kind of fear. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham. <clears throat> and Abraham said, Hineni, here I am. Abraham answered, yes. Before he knew what was going to happen. Abraham, Hineni. Then he, God, said, take your son, your only son. Notice Ishmael's not even called the son. Whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and, the two of, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And I stopped and thought about that verse. Do you think he rose up early because he, he was all eager to go? Like if God told you, take your son, your only son, the one that you love, and go him off him, offer him on a burnt, as a burnt offering to me, would you be eager to go? Or would you be like Jonah? Well, you want me to go there? I'm going to go over there. Right? I think about this. He might have woken early because maybe he didn't even sleep all night long on that one. And they traveled for three days. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. So he's got even further to go. So, so he's, he's on a journey to kill his son. Put yourself in that mindset. And, Abraham's, um, and Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder, yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So I don't know if he believed what happened, that what was going to happen, happened, if that was in his head, or if he was thinking, well, I'm going to go, and I'm going to plunge the knife into Isaac, and, and God's going to raise him up anyway, and we're going to come back. But he told his men, we're going to come back to you. 
So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. So Isaac wasn't a little boy like Luke. Maybe Jonathan's age, maybe older than Jonathan. And he took the fire in his hand and the knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father! And he said, Hineni, my son! And he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? I think Isaac was a little worried. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came. So realize the faith that Abraham had here. He trusted God totally. Then they came to the place which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and placed the wooden order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. So they both have faith here. Think about Jonathan. All right, Jonathan, let's put the wood, wood in place. Okay, now hold out your hands, and I'm going to tie you up and have you lay down here. You think Jonathan could run away, push me, beat me up, and not get on the altar? So there's a faith in Isaac, too. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to, to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Hineni, here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you, that you fear God since you have not withheld to me your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted up his eyes and he took and looked and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horn. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, Jehovah Je Yahweh Yahweh. And it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord shall it shall be provided. That was where the temple was built later. Is that the kind of faith that you have? That if God says do this, you would do this? That is faith that is become, um, being set apart. That is a holy faith. Incidentally, the Jewish people hold in high esteem the ram's horn, the shofar. It's used at Rosh Hashanah several times. It was used to call the nation to war, to call for an assembly, to call the people when they crowned a king. It was to call them to repentance, which is what Rosh Hashanah is all about, and other things. That's called the Akita. That's a big part of Rosh Hashanah. Let's take a look at the other, another passage out of Isaiah chapter 6 and then Isaiah chapter 8. 
My tab fell out, so I have to go searching now. In the year that, Isaiah 6, we're going to read the chapter. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up. Now from John we know that no man has seen God at any time, but the Son has declared Him. So this is a pre-incarnate Son sitting on the throne, down there. High and lifted up in the train of His robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, burning ones, each having, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another in antiphonal, singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The only attribute of God that is raised to the superlative is his holiness in this passage. God is holy, holy, holy. And he commands us to be holy as I am holy. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of them that cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He pronounces a curse on himself, a judgment against himself, because he's a man of unclean speech, unholy speech, who live among a people of unholy speech. That sound familiar? Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal from, that was taken from the altar with the, tong, with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. You now have holy lips. You now have a holy life. You are now set apart. This is what we're supposed to be. And I heard the, door, the voice of the Lord heard, saying, notice he didn't hear the Lord's voice until that point. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and whom shall go, to, go for us? And then he said, Hineni, send me. Here I am, send me. And he said, go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. And then, then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate, the Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, but yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming. And the terebinth tree, uh, as the terebinth tree or an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. So there's a remnant. You're going to go and nobody's going to listen. They're going to have a veil over their heart. They're not going to hear. 
They're not going to see. They're not going to turn. Except for a remnant. The remnant that we're talking about in 1 Peter. The remnant that's sitting here as the grafted-in olive tree. How would you, Roman, like to be called to a ministry like this? Wouldn't that just thrill you? Talk to your blue in the face and they just... One more passage. Just turn over to chapter 8. Isaiah had a a child. Um, Child had a special name. Uh, Maher Salah Hashbaz. And it was a prophetic name. That means... Before the child will have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away. So the child, before the child is weaned or talks, the northern kingdom was going to be taken away by uh, Assyria. And I want you to focus on verses 11 through 18. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand, and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people. Isaiah, you need to be holy to me. Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy. In a different translation, it says, do not say a confederacy. So there's an... There's a thing to understand there that I didn't delve into. Kind of fits our day. Do not say a conspiracy about everything that everyone says is a conspiracy, though. Think about that. We'll leave that one aside. Nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, that's Adonai Tzibaot, the Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow, Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. We'll come back to that. He will be a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the house of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble, and they shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. They're going to perish. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait on the Lord. He who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Here I am, and my children, whom the Lord has has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel, from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion." And I wanted to get to that verse because literally we are for signs and wonders among an unbelieving world. The things that God does for us are going to make them shake their head. And specifically, the the Jews look for a sign. The sign to the Jews is the sign of Jonah, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Messiah. 
The Greeks, they want a reasoning. They want to understand. They want to understand all these things, but God gives them the foolishness of the gospel because you can't understand until you believe. We're like Isaiah, and we're called to have passed our sojourn, our pilgrimage in this world that is not our world, in fear. But the fear is right here. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear. And let him be your dread. Now that's, that's a quote that was in the very first verse that I started on, on Monday. And do not be afraid of their threats, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. It's in chapter 3. It's another start doing this command. The command is to hallow, is the word in English here, and there it's to sanctify. Start setting apart the Lord in your heart. The Lord is holy, holy, holy. We should look upon him and what he says completely differently than we look upon every other source of information and every authority that is under him in the world. Sanctify him, set him apart. Think about this. We are called the temple of the Lord. In your heart, like the most holy place, is where he sits as our father and our king. You should fear what you do with the body of his temple. You should fear what his eyes, because, hey, we were bought with a price. Therefore, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Right? Everything about our life should be holy to the Lord, and He should be holy in our heart, that what He says in His Word is way above anything that we hear in this world. And we have fear of Him. Hallow Him. Let Him be our fear. Let Him be our dread. Another says, Adonai Tzitzavot, Consecrate him. Let him be the object of your fear and your awe. You know, Proverbs 1, 7, the first part says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And chapter 9, verse 10, the first part says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We need to fear the Lord. We need to start... Resting on our hope, we need to, to start being holy, set apart unto God, and we need to start setting God apart in our hearts is completely different. And the outflow of that, as our lives are transformed, is that we need to be ready to have a reasoned defense for our hope that lies within us. And give it to those, everyone who asks in meekness and fear. Your life should be so different that people start asking you, 
Why is your life different? Why do you believe that? And there's your opening for the gospel in many people's lives. You know, I remember, and Yvonne can attest to this, we did a lot of praying for Samuel. And our head nurse, you know, she'd bring us problems. Samuel's got pneumonia. We need to pray. We'll pray. Samuel will get better. The Lord was so on top of answering our prayers to the point where she started telling the other nurses, you need something to pray, talk to these guys. They got a direct line to God. And that was just one little thing, right? In C.S. Lewis's book, I'll close with this quote and then a question. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the children are with the beavers. And they haven't met Aslan yet, the lion, right? And the beavers are telling them about Aslan because they're going to go up to meet him. He says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, says Susan. I thought that he was a man. Is, is, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather, rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? Mr. Beaver said. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's good. He's the king, I tell you. Aslan is the picture of Christ in that book. Christ isn't safe. He doesn't do our bidding. We serve him. The only time he answers is when he's fulfilling his promises for us, which are many, and we ask. It's not kicking it with Jesus or bowling with Jesus. It's serving the king. So the question I have is, how are you going to respond to God's commands? I've given you three. There's like 713 in the New Testament. Will you say, Hineni, 